0: Well, welcome to
1: the podcast, Barton. Great to have you along. and know I've been threatening to do this for quite some time, and I saw you recently at a fantastic event that you ran celebrating Indigenous business, which is something that I really enjoyed. And in fact, a couple of the panellists who were speaking that day are going to be on my podcast as well. So anyway, thanks for that opportunity. It's great to see you.
2: Thanks, Richard. It's, uh, I've been avoiding it as long as I possibly could. I figured I'd better get it done today.
1: Well, I I know that something you did recently was a charity-type event where you had to sit in a wheelchair. Was that for a day or a week, or what was that all about? Well, thank goodness, only a day,
2: yeah. One of our affiliate members is the uh, Sporting Wheelies and Disabled Association, and they came up with an idea, inaugural year this year, to challenge roughly 20 CEOs to spend a day in a wheelchair. But to do that, you had to raise $5,000 first. So... I was very lucky with a lot of support from friends and the committee. We raised uh, just over six thousand dollars, and I participated in that event. And wow, what a challenge! Really, really opened my eyes up. I've got some friends who are in chairs, and you know, you look at them and they travel footpaths and ramps and things with ease. It was a real eye opener for me. A much harder day than I thought it would be, and. You know, I spend so much time now on the streets looking down at just what our footpaths and things like in Jeep, think about mobility issues for people who have challenges.
1: Yeah, it it just reminds me of that saying, you know, before you judge somebody, walk a mile in their shoes or as you did, uh, wheel a mile in, in a wheelchair and then you really know what it's all about.
2: Well, I didn't get a mile, mate. I don't reckon really, I could have done a mile. It was hard work.
1: Right. And, uh,
2: although it was one of my uh, apparently friends said we were in sort of the uh, the Mazda version of the wheelchair where she's in a Lamborghini version. So, oh, you, right. it us, you know, we had your bog standard one, but it was a real eye-opener.
1: Okay. All right. Oh, that's a wonderful thing to do, Barton. So tell us a little bit about what you're up to professionally at the moment. Well, I've been our CEO
2: of the Committee for Brisbane coming up to three years at the end of this year, which has gone really quite fast, given what's been happening globally and in our community. For me, I finished phase one after about 18 months. My my brief was to restructure the organisation, restructure the membership fees, restructure the management committee, update the constitution, and really broaden the brief of the organisation. Richard, this, this Committee for Brisbane, as it was previously known as the Brisbane Development Association, has been around since 1958. It's probably the oldest of its type in Australia, and it's got a really proud history. But it, it had tilted a bit to a, a built environment organisation over the years. We have lots of architects and town planners and urban designers in our membership, uh, as we would expect to do. And in its 60th year, the decision was taken to change the name. The word development meant very different things in the modern Environment that it did in 1958. Become the Committee for Brisbane, and we're part of an Australia New Zealand network of committees for cities and regions. We all have different backgrounds and, and we all got our own geographic focus, but it allowed us to participate there. Uh, but it also allowed the committee to really expand its reach. So the vision for the Committee for Brisbane is Greater Brisbane as the world's most livable place and i'm a brisbane boy i haven't always lived here but i've spent most of my life in and around here so that's a really easy thing for me to get out of bed every day to drive forward on and my job with my team is to look for projects and activities that allow us to move towards that aspiration primarily under four key themes of connectivity creativity equity and enterprise and so we work every day to look for ways that we can push ideas out there for public comment and debate and consideration and uh it's a really broad theme, broad range of themes that we get to participate in. And we're finding that the interest in the business community is really growing with respect to how people think about the city that they live and work in. And I think COVID and Isolation, et cetera, has actually contributed to that. People are thinking more deeply about that. So we just timed it right accidentally, despite all the challenges for the community.
0: And so, Barton,
1: give us maybe one or two examples of projects that you're involved in. As you said, you know, wide and varied. So, I want to give people a, a better sense, you know, uh, perhaps highlight a couple of those.
2: Well, under those themes, uh, last year uh, we published a whole lot of documents on Brisbane 2033, uh, our legacy project. So, the year after hosting the Olympic and Paralympic Games, if we look back, what should we have achieved? So, we spent a lot of time working with a lot of members on what those. You know, opportunities for our region and community could be. And we, we're now working through a number of those ideas and driving projects there. We published a, a Southeast Queensland Smart Region paper last year, again, with the contributions from a lot of our members, talking about the digital and data economic capabilities of our region and what we need to do to make ourselves as capable as possible as businesses, particularly small businesses, to benefit from. Digital and data literacy. At the moment, we're just putting the finishing touches to a 2050 transport and mobility vision for Southeast Queensland. A real helicopter look at um, what, how will people live and where will they live and what will they be doing in 2050, and how do we ensure we have a transport system that accommodates how we move people and freight around Southeast Queensland? That's been in train now for a couple of years. We're working on a homelessness project with a whole bunch of others, looking at how we can, you know, resolve that wicked problem we hope of homelessness in our community. And uh, we're working on a research project about sports hubs and centres of excellence in southeast Queensland. That came out of that Olympics work, which is a uh, potential for a brand new driver for southeast Queensland in sports innovation and technology. So, I'm um, that's just a, a few of the, you know, probably dozen or so projects we're mm. working on. So it's definitely varied.
1: And, and as you and I are both weekend warrior musicians, I know that you're very sort of involved in reigniting the live music industry post-COVID.
2: Well, you know, it's interesting. Brisbane had, in normal times, the largest nighttime economy in Australia. Now, that's because we have normally very active night economy, and we're a large city that contributes to it as well. But it got smashed, like so many things during COVID. And Q Music is one of our affiliate partners we work with a lot of art and cultural organisations and we suggested to them that we could help with our business connections in, you know, getting the mojo back for live music in Brisbane, live contemporary music. So at the moment we're exploring with Q Music and others uh, the opportunity again to do some research to back some hopeful policy initiatives about how we can ensure that the experiences people have when they're here for the games in 2032, the live music experiences they have, uh, yeah, world's best, and they go home raving about it. So we're working backwards from that date. So that'll be a fun project, I think.
1: it's well, fantastic, Barton. And you mentioned earlier that historically a lot of your members were involved in some way with sort of built environment architects and engineers and so on, whereas obviously the projects you're doing now are far broader than that. So how many members are there?
2: Well, when I started, which was January 2020, Hard to remember dates these days. It's like <laughs> January 2020. Um, we had 95 members. We've got 220, 230 now. So that's been uh, a nice thing to see. And, and, and the income has grown, which has allowed us to expand our team, which allows us then to return more activity and effort into what we can deliver for our members. So now the three big unis are now members, you know, Westpac, QIC. So we've got some big, big organizations like mm-hmm. that. Uh, pretty well all of the big engineering firms and the consulting firms are members. But we have lots of individual members as well, people who are either sole traders or retired or have been previously involved. So it's a really nice mix that we have. And we set up a a membership category uh, about 18 months ago called Affiliate, and it's a non-paying category for peak bodies, charities, not-for-profits that we wanted to work with. And I, I thought we'd end up with maybe 20 or 25. There's nearly 80 of those now that have come on board and across a whole range of areas, social, welfare, sport is now starting to join us uh, because I think of the work we're doing around the Olympics legacy piece, and we, we don't have an official role in the Olympics at all, but as a business community, we're mm. to, to contribute our ideas with our members, uh, and we've just grown that category, which now gives us a network that we can tap into at short notice to really get the expertise an experience we may need on a particular topic of interest that we'd like to pursue. So that's a really rich part of our membership structure
1: now. Oh, that's excellent, Bart. Well, let's jump back a little bit more to Committee for Brisbane later in this conversation. But for, to segue now, let's go back to where it all began for you. So tell us a little bit about, you know, where you were born, mum, dad, brothers and sisters, and, and let's have a little trip through your career.
2: Oh, my goodness me. But I come <laughs> from an Irish Catholic family, look out. So... <laughs> <laughs> Well, I was born in Brisbane. I was born about a kilometre from where I now live. I live in West End. I was born at St Andrew's Wollmer Memorial Hospital in 1960. So my mum and dad built their first house uh, in 1959 at the Grange, when it was an outer suburb of Brisbane. It's amazing. It's one of the first houses built on the top of the hill there. I've lived in Brisbane a lot of my life, and around South East Queensland most of my life. I went to school at Gregory Terrace. We did we did live on Sydney and Rocky, uh, but moved back to Brisbane when I was about 12, went to school at Terrace, went to uni to study journalism and worked as a cadet journalist at the old Brisbane Telegraph, the people old enough to remember the afternoon newspaper.
1: Were your parents involved in that industry?
2: No, not at all. No, no. Mum was a, uh, had been a teacher and went back to teach a librarian, being a teacher librarian after all the kids grew up. And my father worked in uh, he was the general manager for Bridge Gold Earth movie ties in, in Northern Australia. So when you simulate boxer.
1: <laughs> oh, is that right? <laughs> so what inspired you towards journalism? Is it something that you know you always knew when you were in high school it's where you wanted to end up or had that kind of do no, on the uh, radar?
2: I thought I'd be a marine biologist, but I was crap at science and good at English. And one of my father's best mates was a senior journalist at the Queensland newspapers who got an interview for me. In fact, my first job was as a a luggage porter at the then gazebo hotel on Wickham Terrace. But I ended up getting a, a cadetship a few months later and spent the next few years in and out of journalism in uh, Brisbane and Gold Coast and Sydney, which I've always loved having had that experience. And I was lucky I had it probably in the halcyon days of journalism. We had more journalists, artists and photographers working in TV, radio and print than at any other time mm. since then. Uh, I then went on and became the secretary of the journalist union Here in Queensland for a few years, which was a a great experience. It's, you know, when I, you know, you become a bit of a lefty when you're younger, I think, in a lot of these things. Uh, I really did enjoy working there, but it was a challenging job. I think I was 26 years old when I got elected as Secretary of the Union, which is a pretty big deal. I think I was the youngest in the history of the Union in Australia to have done that. Hard, hard work, enjoyable work. I still have some of the closest friends I've ever made uh, from that period of time. And, yeah did a bit of freelance journalism after that, then I got approached by the boss government to be an advisor to the environment minister, Molly Robson. Mm-hmm. She and I had never met, but uh, she's ended up being one of my very close and trusted friends. And I worked for Molly for a couple of years until my wife and I got pregnant. And it's a hard job being a leader advisor for a minister when you've got a little one. So yeah, moved away from that, and. um Ultimately, into running Keep Australia Beautiful for about uh, 10 years as CEO and then chairman. That was good fun. And then set up my own business consultancy called Three Plus, which just had its 20th anniversary uh, a, few, a few weeks ago.
1: Yes, sir. Uh, I, I remember being your client back in the day. I think it was probably around about uh,
2: 2009, 2010. That's so long ago, Richard. Uh, I know. <laughs> it, it,
1: it, it feels a lifetime ago. Far out. What is a crazy sort of 13 years it's been since then, huh?
2: Well, it's yeah, it it hasn't been interesting. The GFC are now going through. But if you can survive those things in business, you can survive anything. And, Mm. um, you know, it's interesting. This job came up. Three-plus had been a member of the Committee for Brisbane for a long time, and my two business partners had both been vice presidents. One of them is still the vice president. And I think he regrets coming back to the office one day because he knew I was going to retire uh, in a little while of three plus. He said, I think I found a job you'll like. Right. And, uh, and I, this is every job I've ever had in one job. In fact, there was 178 candidates for this job, which is terrific for the committee that there was that much interest for it. Sure. but I really wanted it. I think I did. I had 47 referees for the job and a 15-page application. <laughs> they,
1: right.
2: I wanted a really detailed response. I really wanted the job, so I'm very happy I got it.
1: Oh, very good. So I'm interested in sort of appealing some of that stuff. So basically, you know, you were a journalist. Then you became, you know, the union representative, which is quite a significant career shift. Then you went to become a CEO of a not-for-profit. And then you started your own business.
2: Yeah, and a bit of ministerial advisory in the middle there. So,
1: you know, you certainly haven't... Although you could say, okay... A lot of the works had a sort of a public relations kind of, you know, marketing communications orientation to it, right? But, but I mean, you haven't really stayed in one lane. So what, I mean, when you, for example, made the choice to go and join Keep Australia Beautiful, you know, and and you're stepping into a CEO gig for the first time, What what sort of inspired that? And and when you looked at that opportunity, what kind of self-reflection did you do in terms of you know, what skills she needed in order to make that transition well? Well,
2: that's a good question. The then chair of Keep Australia Beautiful was my former minister, Molly Robson. Okay. And uh, she'd been there for a while. And, and Keep Australia Beautiful was founded in 1967. It's the oldest community-based organisation in Australia. But it was, and in fact, when I started there, there was a couple of staff that had been working there for over 20 years and had you know, become a bit more about it. And style. And Molly went in there at the invitation of the van board to shake it up a bit. She invited me in to write two new programs for the organisation: one about beaches and one about rivers, which I did. Um, the Clean Beach Challenge is now still running today. I did that uh, 20 plus years ago. It's still running. It's a national program now, so I'm very proud of that. But at the time, the the then general manager, I think there were some challenges there between the board and that person. Uh, and I put my hand up to take on the role of uh, CEO. Uh, I had been a trade union secretary, so I knew how to run and manage boards. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, so I've had that experience uh, and been on boards really since my mid 20s. So that wasn't frightening. Uh, because I'd also been working as a journalist, I had some pretty good connections around town. So this is been the nature of my work. Every time I've taken on a board role, either as CEO or chair, I've done it a few times, I'm a change agent, so my job was to restructure that organisation. So I rewrote all the other programs, worked with my colleagues in the other capital cities around Australia to rewrite the Tidy Towns Program. You know, it's an iconic program in Australia, but it was very old-fashioned. We rewrote it and turned it into a very modern community-based environmental activism program about projects on the ground. So, you know, that sort of stuff to me, that's that's what gets me out of bed, right? That That's what drives me every day. And I think when I left that organisation, it had an income of in-kind dollars, of about a million dollars a year, which was something four or five times greater than when I started. But it just meant that we were doing really rich programs in schools, beaches, towns, on industrial sites. It was we'd really great, just something quite
1: wonderful. So... What then inspired you, having you know, proven your success as CEO, to then want to go and start your own business?
2: I had worked with a couple of journo mates of mine off and on, and I guess at Keep Australia Beautiful, as a change agent, once the change is in and running, it's time to hand over to the next version of the CEO, which are those that are really good at managing and implementing and keeping a steady hand on the, on the runner. So, The excitement of change, structural reform, was done. I'd done the job. Uh, And I'd always thought about getting out there back on my own again, which I had done a couple of times as a a freelance journalist. And we formed 3+. And it was named 3+, because we were going to be three working directors plus external consultants when we needed them. We workshopped that idea for six months before we started the company, and the business model failed after one month. We had to put our first employee (laughs) on. That yeah. was good. We found that the external consultants might not necessarily be available when you wanted them to be available. Yes. So, so we, we, we uh, hired someone. Then we had to rent premises, and thankfully, friends of ours uh, gave us uh, cheap rent. Uh, and really, within a couple of years, we had 12 staff in our own premises. We ultimately grew to 65 to 70 staff in seven offices up the east coast of Australia. Mm. Uh, And we're on the path to becoming an international company of 250 people. That was our business strategy. We had advisors working with us at lawyers, and we invested in all the back-end stuff, Uh, and then the GFC, and we were smashed to pieces. Mm -hmm. And we had to reduce that 60-plus people down originally to about 40, then to 20, and uh, today, three-plus is a small Small but debt-free and profitable company, but very different beast to what it was then. I haven't had any involvement in it now for some time, but um, mm-hmm. I think after the GFC, the directors decided that we were probably a bit too old and a bit smashed around to try to recapture that growth path, and we just stick to being a small
1: firm. Right, and so what then? Yeah, so then the the draw was to go back into an organisation as a CEO. Or was it, in particular, the Committee of Brisbane that, you know, caused you to go, oh, that looks interesting. i would learned to play play there. Yeah, no, definitely
2: the second one. I was planning to retire from three-plus in the middle of 2020, mm-hmm. and my business partners and I had been working on our strategy for achieving that. So I ended up leaving six months earlier. I was going to try to get some board roles and work uh, independently by myself as well get some board roles, and this job came along. So it was only... This job right? I did that for,
0: yeah.
1: Uh-huh. And uh, as you say, you know, when you joined the organisation, the mandate initially was to take it through a restructure, which you've successively completed now. So what, what have been some of the other milestones over the last two and a bit years since you've been in the role?
2: Well, there's a few things, I guess. The ability to do some of this research work has been critical. You know, you know, six weeks after I started the job, COVID came to Brisbane, right? Mm-hmm. You know, all your plans go out the window. What, what happened for me, because I'd spent the first few weeks going around and talking to people, just saying, g'day, what's happening? And I reckon I'd seen 60 or 70 people in those first few weeks, and more than half of those people were not from Brisbane <laughs> originally, many of them from overseas. And they all said to me, I'm never leaving this place. So... I always said, you've got to tell me why. I really got to find out what the zeitgeist is here. I, you know, and essentially what was reflected back to me each time was that it was a lifestyle choice, depending on what stage of life you were. You might have kids at school and you want to be able to walk or cycle the school safely and have a good education. Or you might be intending to retire. or You've got a holiday home up or down the coast or over on the Um So it was a lifestyle thing. And what was happening because of COVID, particularly that first lockdown, As I said earlier, people started to think very deeply about how they wanted to work, live and play Mm -hmm. in the place that they live. So that gave me the opportunity to restructure, I guess, the way we were approaching some of our ideas and projects and activities to focus really hard on the lifestyle benefits and outcomes that people were looking to achieve. So I mentioned earlier this 2050 transport and mobility vision. It's it's completely project agnostic. It doesn't talk about building a bridge here or a road there. It's talking about how people will be and they're wanting to live in 2050 and then how we facilitate that to its best ability. So what we're finding now is that that type of conversation is resonating really well with our members and others. And the membership growth, I think, reflects that. And we try not to do what my colleagues do, say the Property Council or the UDIA or, or the Chamber of Commerce and Industry. They all do great jobs representing generally an industry sector. We're not an industry body. Our conversation is about Brisbane and the region.
1: So as you say, rather than representing a particular industry, you're representing you know, people who largely, I imagine, have similar goals. But they're coming in from a, a bunch of different angles. So it must be challenging. And, you know, I, I made the comment to you before the, we started, you know, it's a very large committee in itself. So it, when you're trying to manage so many varied organizations and people who all have their own agenda and their own desired outcomes, what, how, do, how do you do that successfully? Well, like
2: any organization, we have our strategic plan. We review that at the beginning of every year, we, we road test the outcomes of that strategic plan during the year by delivering on projects and ideas and activities so that we're getting, you know, very direct feedback from our membership as to whether we're on the right path. Uh, we don't get everything right, but we're getting better at it all the time. So you know we apply a, a pretty typical strategic and implement sorry strategic and implementation model where we do the thinking and then we review during the year how that thinking's proceeding and then do a significant review annually. Because the world changes, right? There are are things and different priorities, and the elephants and the Paralympics is is a game changer. You can't have a conversation now without talking about that. So for us, that's a great organising theme for all the stuff that we're doing. What's it going to be like in 2032? Let's work backwards from there about how we achieve that. So, you know, I don't think there's any surprises in our model. We do have lots of subcommittees, so we've got a big membership and we tap into their expertise voluntarily. They'll put their hand up to self-select to work on a project, uh, which means that we get to work with people who are at the cutting edge of some of the stuff we're working on, and they give us their time and resources mm-hmm. for nothing to be able to contribute to great conversations about our city and, region. and I guess uh, most membership-based organisations would work similarly to that. For us, we're just lucky that we've got the broad church conversation of what's what's good for Brisbane and what's good for South East
1: and so obviously, you know, part of of your funding comes from membership subscriptions. What what's the what's the association with government and, and how involved is government?
2: We're completely independent of government. Right. So we're an apolitical and independent body. So all of our income comes from membership fees and a little bit from events. Right. We don't set out to make a lot of money from
1: events. So yeah. And so is the idea then, Barton, that the members have the ability to contribute as part of the subcommittees or you know, in other ways, to develop essentially, you know, a think tank of, you know, ideas and and then they're able to then take that away into their own businesses as is appropriate for their own endeavours.
2: They can do that. Last year when we published our Brisbane 2033 legacy material, in March we had John Coates, who was then president of the AOC launch the first policy document, and that presented 20 big ideas for Southeast Queensland, two of which were part sort of infrastructure. The rest were about society and community and, and health and wellbeing and art and culture. Then in October last year, we published the second suite, which was the strategic steps and timeframes that you might take to get from today to where those big aspiration ideas would take us. Mm-hmm. We had about 25 members working on the first document. And I had thankfully gone out to four of our more senior members in uh, Oracle and Deloitte Accenture and PwC and said, look, when we get to stage two, can you give me a hand? I can't do it on my own. Thank God I did because 120 people put their hand up to work on that second phase, right? So, So we had uh, 1,500 hours of contributed time across 20 working groups. You know, it's probably getting up to nearly half a million dollars worth of consulting time contributed to the thinking of you know, the strategic steps and ideas that would move us from today to this future. Some of those organisations then took some of that work back into their own organisation, either for discussion or promotion. Uh, others are still involved with this now as we're starting to roll out some of those ideas. We picked mm-hmm. up on two or three of them and said, well, we can go ahead and do that ourselves and so let's test that and see how we go. So, we're doing this research project on sports hubs and centres of excellence. That fell out of the project. We've just established, uh, we think, Australia's first uh, creative collaboration between commerce and creativity. That fell out of that process. So, you know, it's, it's nice to know that we're not just publishing a document and putting it up on a shelf to get dusty. We're actually then driving forward with some of the initiatives. And we presented it to all levels of government. We were never expecting that they'd accepted holiness policy as a bunch of recommendations. We always just said to government, these are some ideas. You might mm-hmm. like to have a think about them.
1: Yeah. Okay. And, and so sitting here today, you know, in the second half of 2022, if you look out to the future for Brisbane, you know, other than obviously the Olympics and so on, what are some of the things that you're excited about?
2: Well, the other that we haven't talked about yet is the Southeast Queensland City deal. Mm-hmm. So... Leave lead the Olympic and Paralympics aside and in the, in the investment that is needed there for some infrastructure, but also community benefit. There's a $1.2 billion city deal that was announced earlier this year that will start to be rolled out as of the end of this year. The implementation plan should be public probably around November, I think. That's another game changer for our southeast Queensland community. That will be a 20-year deal that lines up the three levels of government in theory, in harmony, to take the politics and budget cycles and election cycles out of decision making on significant infrastructure projects, to ensure that the population growth that's coming here, which is we're doubling size in the next 25 years, that's pretty bloody significant. Mm. Uh, that we don't lose what people like about our city and region as that happens. So I am quite excited about that. The, the committee and a bunch of our colleagues from other uh, industry associations are part of the industry consultative group on that, and we're looking forward to working with the three levels of government. In, in driving and influencing some of the outcomes from that. That's a big, mm-hmm. biggie for me. The other is First Nations inclusivity. I, I, you know, I don't think I've ever experienced more willingness from the business community and the general community, but more willingness from the business community to get our relationship right with our First Nations people. Um, that event you came to recently was just a step we're trying to take to Uh, provide some platforms for, in that instance, First Nations business people to talk about their day-to-day experiences, what worked well, what didn't work well, what are their challenges and opportunities. It was a bit of an eye-opener event. I think people were quite shocked at some of the the day-to-day stuff that happens for our First Nations business Mm. people. But it also opened people's eyes up to the opportunity about participation and support. So I'm very excited about that. We've just... uh, about to publish our first reconciliation action plan as a committee for Brisbane. That's a first step, a big step, and I'm looking forward to working with a bunch of our members to see if we can encourage more to take that step. You know, but got the treaty conversations moving forward now in the state of Queensland. These are really important and mature conversations for us to have. The other is homelessness. It's just, it's a scourge in the community, but it is not an intractable problem in south-east Queensland. We don't have entire suburbs of tent cities outside of you know, San Francisco or, mm. you know, in Seattle, et cetera. It is, it is a not an intractable problem and we're hoping to be quite proactive and probably a bit disruptive with a bunch of people we're working on with some ideas about how they can be resolved.
1: And so as an example, you know, either the homeless situation or Indigenous encouragement of relations and so on, are you actively looking at what's happening elsewhere in the world and picking up, you know, best practice ideas to bring back here, or is it largely being self-generated?
2: No, it's a combination of the two. So if I look at the homelessness one first, the people we're working with are the day-to-day practitioners. Mm-hmm. So Queensland Council of Social Service, Micro Projects, St Vincent de Paul, Meals on Wheels, people who work in this space all the time, they are up with best practice. So... What I'm bringing to the table through the Committee for Brisbane is is access to some corporates who are interested in driving this agenda, either financially or with their people's resources, to change it up. So we're definitely tapping into what's happening around the world on that project. With the First Nations stuff, uh, we have a First Nations advisory group that is leading these discussions for us, so we rely on them and their experiences and knowledge as to how these, how we can... Best support the aspirations of First Nations people. We're a business body, so our focus is primarily on business, but you know, generally about uh, participation and and activity in the community. You know that event you came to where we had the four First Nations speakers and a First Nations panelist. Um, that came after another event we did a few weeks earlier where we had. Uh, five women panellists speaking, who were all industry leaders, the head of the Australian Industry Group, you know, the head of Engineers Australia, the head of the UDIA, senior leaders in our community. And people had made observations to me about, gee, wasn't it great to have all First Nations people? Wasn't it great to have all the women? And I said, won't it be great when we don't even have to have that conversation anymore, because that's just normal. So that's what I'm hoping we can play our role, a little bit moving towards that change in our
1: society. Fantastic. And so, Barton, if people are interested in getting involved who are listening to this podcast, what's the best way they can do that? Well, give us a call. Uh, you know, have a look at our
2: website probably first and just familiarize yourself with some of the things we're doing, just committeeforbrisbane.org.au. Um, or give us a call. Our numbers are on there, Richard. Now, we, um, we have members joining us every month, which is great. Most of them come. By recommendations from other members saying, no, you really should get involved with this crew. That's always exciting because I get to have this conversation with people every month and, and see their excitement in getting involved in discussions about where they live. But it also means we're adding more and more expertise and experience to that great talent pool that we've got through our memberships. You know, the whole intent of what we do is to contribute ideas to our community and governments for consideration. And it's all about how do we make this place, this great place, even better.
1: Fantastic. And, Barton, you said your intention as you exited 3 Plus was to step into a a portfolio career and be on a few boards and so on. That's kind of the back burner for the time being. But is that still, you know, on the radar for you once you've uh, fulfilled this role?
2: I think so. I've always enjoyed being on boards. Some are more enjoyable than others. I've always enjoyed being on them. And, you know, I'm, I'm 62 this year. And I've been in the workforce for over 40 years. And, it, you know, I just think it's important to be giving back in a way. And so I've always done some charitable work. But that's, what I'm looking for is in, in paid board roles is the ability to contribute some of that experience to the benefit of that particular entity. So, yeah. yes, I think so. It, it'll be interesting to see. I've got to have the energy to do it, of course. You know, the knees are getting creaky and all of those things happen. All that fun of getting a bit older. But
1: yes, I think so. Too much double kick drum. (laughs) But he's a keen drummer, as I have a keen guitarist, and your band had a gig, what last weekend or a couple of weekends ago? Yeah, weekend
2: before last. So uh, we're trying to play a few gigs. The Filberts. So right. It's an interesting fun. We, we this is a, an ex journo band formed in the mid '80s that uh, we just started playing a few gigs around Brisbane. And the lead singer moved to Sydney
1: yeah.
2: uh, to work in journalism. So the band fell apart. Then we all got married and had children. And I approached the, the two remaining members in Brisbane just before my 60th birthday and said, "Look, I'd love to just play a few songs." Yeah. the 60th. And so we got together and then COVID hit and my 60th, couldn't go ahead or postpone. So I had a 60.5th birthday, which was good because we got to do a few more rehearsals. And uh, we played about a dozen songs at uh, the party, about 75 or 80 people there. And we just had so much fun. We said, oh, let's just keep going. So we played a few gigs around uh, around Brisbane and written some new songs and having a blast, enjoy. Oh, that's
1: right. And are you all still ex so or? Like- you have to broaden your selection criteria?
2: Uh, no, no, it's the same band, same guys. So one is still a journalist, uh, and the other works in communications for a state government
1: body. So uh, so yeah, the, guy that, the guy that moved out south, he's still in the band or not? No, no, no. no. Right. He's been married lived down there. No. Okay, right. uh, so you're just a uh, three-piece now.
2: Three-piece, yeah. Uh-huh. Very like, good. You know, like you know, there's been some pretty good three-pieces in there, Dad. Oh, there's been some
1: <laughs> phenomenally good three-pieces. The fact, police? Uh, uh, I'm not putting
2: ourselves up anywhere there. Very just good um, surf oh.
1: oh, that's excellent, bud. Well, look, I really appreciate your time today. Thanks very much for sharing your story, and I wish you all the very best. I'll certainly be coming along to more Committee of Brisbane events in the future, and have a fantastic afternoon.
0: Thanks,
2: Richard. Appreciate the opportunity.
0: Okay. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Arate Podcast with Richard Trix. For show notes and other resources, please visit aratepodcast.com while you are there you can subscribe for future episodes so you can continue your own journey towards realizing your full potential as a senior executive and please be sure to share this and other episodes with your friends and colleagues the arate podcast is brought to you by the experts on air podcast network